Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to this uh, Development Masterclass with Terry Kalajian. Um, before we start, I just want to get a very quick sense of who's in the room, because this session is going to all be, it's, it's basically, to use an Americanism, it's about pitching and receiving. So it's about that process of going from a kind of pitching a great idea to seeing it made. I want to get a quick sense, hands up in the room, how many people are usually pitching, and how many people are, say, on the receiving end of pitches? So if you're normally pitching ideas, give us a quick hands up. And if you're on the receiving end of pitches and producing and execing, okay. So we got that's the that's the sense of the room, Terry. <laughs> okay. We got a lot of pitches, which is fantastic. <laughs> now, we tell a, we have a cherished story about working in any in the media industry, in the creative industries, and that is that it's full of creative people, and these creative people are sweating, blood, sweat, and creative tears to deliver their creative vision. Now, of course, what we realise after a few years in the business is that the business is full of the other kind of c-word. And that is compromise. And that's what you guys were thinking, right? Oh yeah, that's what you were all thinking. And we're very, very lucky to have Terry here today because her CV is is crammed with a career spent in the creative industry, doing creative things, but also with lots of experience of compromise. Just to give you a quick outline, so Terry's currently a VP with Gormont Animation, but she has exec, she's developed, she has produced, and she's acquired across a career of over 20 years in all kinds of different children's media. So, for example, names you'll have heard of like Cartoon Network, like Mattel, like Marvel, uh, or Rainmaker, many, many more. We're also talking about brands, shows, shows that kids really love. So this is the woman who brought Peppa Pig to American audiences for the first time. Has also worked with Hot Wheels and has worked with Superhero Squad. I tell you what, I'm cherry-picking very, very briefly from a very big CV. At one point, Terry said in her career she was listening to a 1,000 pitches a year, which I try to do the maths on, and there's at least five a day every single working day of the year. And of those, only 90 got through? No, less than that. You know, it would depend on the year, but, but you know, the, the average is very low. Very, very, very low. low. Yeah. Very, very low. So what we're about to hear is a kind of masterclass in how to be that very, very small percentage of brilliant ideas that gets through the process, gets through the pitch, and gets onto green light. Uh, because what we're talking about here is, is a process where lots of people are fighting for attention and only a very, very few are going to get made. And Terry's got that insight into what that, what that process involves. So, ladies and gentlemen, with nothing more from me, a big round of applause and welcome to Terry Kalajian. Hi, how's it going? Um, so, uh, before we get started, just to, to, to expand on what Steve said, which is, um, so I've been in the trenches with you guys. I've pitched people over and over and over again, and uh, some he people are here that I pitched to. And uh, and you know, one thing that you have to just get your head around and wrap it around is is what that process means. And um, and so much of that process is actually uh, about the C word that we talked about, um, which is compromise. And and really, that's what today's talk is about. You know, how much do you need to compromise to be able to succeed? So I don't know if I'll be able to share with you how to get to a green light because I think that's a mystery to all of us, and it's an ever-changing sea of uh, of changes and questions and answers. But how do we prepare ourselves better to be able to get to that place? So there's that C word again, compromise. Damn it! And that's what it's going to take. It takes that. So let's go through a little bit of how that starts. So you have an idea. 
and you know, it's this inkling of a spark that you have and it's amazing and it's fantastic. And in fact, it's hilarious and it is, you know, it's cutting edge and, and really it is totally unique. No one's ever heard or seen of this anywhere before on the face of the planet. This is your idea and you know that people are going to love it. In fact, it's the next SpongeBob. And, uh, and there's a few of us who, who have heard this before. Um, and so what you do is you do what uh, we all have to do, which is actually do the hard work. You put your pen to paper or you're, you're, you're typing and you get your ideas um, you, on paper. Sorry about this, I'm actually going along with this on here and so I'll be stopping and starting a bit. Um, and so if you have, uh, if you have uh, um, you know, in your CV, the word writer, or if someone like you is a writer, you go to them and, you'll, and they'll help you put together like a, a Bible, really the background of your story, who your people, who your characters are, what the world looks like, and, you know, and what is, what's the hook for your story? What makes your story different than every other story that's out there? Or, and then also you or someone like you who has the word artist in their CV will help you put together images. And I'm talking mostly about animation here, not, not so much live action. Live action is a little bit different because you don't really have, um, you don't always have images that will go along with it. You can do, but it's a, it's a bit different. But so I'm talking mostly about animation if, if that's okay with you guys. Is that all right with you guys? Okay. So, so then what you start doing is you put together your world. You put together who everyone is, like I said, and it's the hard work, right? You go through the storytelling and you go through, okay, so this character and this character goes down this road, this happens to them, this is the magic that happens if there's magic in your series, this is what happens, and boom, you'll hit a wall. Well, if that happens and this can't happen, and you start doing really the hard work of saying, actually, that's a rule that's in my world that I can't let happen. And you really figure it out. You, and, and a lot of times this takes a long time. It can take 18 months, it can take six months, it can take two years. Those of us who've worked on projects have seen this. It, it takes a long time and you do need to do the hard work. When you're going and pitching, that's one thing I would say as a, as a first rule, do the hard work and go through the process of really figuring out what your world is, who your characters are. It's gonna change. And that's what's gonna piss you off. But you have to have done the hard work in the beginning because they're gonna ask what, that, what the stories are. And, they, and your buyers and the people who you're commissioning, uh, people who are commissioning are gonna to wanna to know that you did that work ahead of time. So then, if you're lucky, you've, had a, you've, you've talked to buyers before. So then you go and you do a little of your own research. So you go to a buyer or a commissioner or, or a platform or, or producer and you'll ask, so have you heard of other projects like mine? What? No, of course not. Have you already, are you already working on another project like mine? And of course, the worst thing is that they would say yes, but hopefully they say no. And of course, you'll always want to ask, how much do you love my project? And of course, that's what you want to hear is that they love your project. And if you're lucky, your amazing, fantastic, hilarious, cutting edge, one of kind idea will get picked up by a producer or by a platform or by a commissioner and you'll get a green light, right? That's what we all hope for. And of course, what happens in celebration? Woohoo! Um, and of course then, what your, your feeling will be is, well, here's your idea, it's perfect. This is the thing that they bought. This is the thing that they love. It's exactly what they need for their platform or there. It's exactly what the marketplace is looking for. It's perfect, right? It's perfect. This is what happens. Well, maybe it's not perfect. 
Maybe it's mostly perfect and there's a, there's a crossover, but there needs to be a little bit of changes. Maybe that happens. Maybe it's not exactly a little bit. Maybe there's a few more changes that need to happen, a, few, a little bit more changes. Or maybe there's a lot more changes that need to happen. And so you wonder to yourself, if you're, especially if you're a new creator, I don't understand. Like, they bought my idea. They love my idea. What's going on? Why are there so many changes? Well, um, something that you should know is that it's true. What, if a person comes in and commissions your idea or options your idea, they do love it. They see that spark of that amazing idea that's in there. And, they're, and what they're doing is they want to work with you to be able to get that idea to a place in a story where they can go and either put it on the air and it will work. They're trying to get it to, to develop it to a success or they can sell it into the marketplace, into broadcasters. They're not just doing it to be jerks, to pull it off to the market. They're doing it because they really do love the idea and they really want to work with you to get it to work. At the end of the day though, what happens is that what happens for you will be choices. You'll have to make choices. And you have to really realize this as you're going into it. This whole thing is a collaboration. This whole thing is working with other people. And rarely is there an idea that goes from what it was originally to what it's going to be in its final iteration. It, that rarely, rarely ever happens. Maybe if your name is Steven Spielberg. But that's not my name. And I don't know if that's anybody's name in here. And so part of the thing that you need to know about these choices and these things is that the cards are actually stacked against you, even when you're going in to pitch, but also they're stacked against you as you're going through development because there's all these other things that are happening. They, they have other shows that are like yours, sorry, when you take it out to the marketplace. Of course, that's impossible because your show is unique, but uh, uh, you also have these other things. They're looking for comedy now. They're looking for action now. They're looking for a boy show. They're looking for a girl show. They're looking for an ensemble show. There's just too many clowns. I mean, you hear these kinds of things all the time. So just know that the cards are stacked up against you. And your development exec, who, who eventually you'll work with, is there to help wade through those waters and to help you and help us get through them so that we can get to green light, we can get, get our show up and out there so audience can, can watch it and love it like we do. And of course, what happens with these choices, that C word again, compromise. Now you need to realize that there's a whole lot of gray space between nothing, compromising nothing, and compromising everything. Just a whole lot of gray space. Again, your development person will work with you um, to be able to figure out a way to get, to get that core of your idea, that specialness, that amazing idea onto the screen. And that'll take some work too, because you'll have some back and forth, back and forth. And they'll probably ask for a lot of different things and you're gonna grumble about it and, and, uh, and say, okay, we'll try to do that. And, we'll, and whether it's rewriting scripts, rewriting character profiles, but a lot of it is actually about questions, questioning you about, um, so what's your character's motivation? Why do they actually do this? What happens if you put them in the middle of an ocean on an island by themselves? Then what happens? What do they do? What if you add Donald Trump to that? Then what do they do? Oh, okay, I don't know. So it's one of those things that you have to really go through that, that process of asking and answering questions. And that's what your development person will, will do with you. That's what I do with my creators. So when I work with them, we'll, at Gamal, what we do is we, uh, um, we option projects. And some of them are from books, so they're, um, 
they're with the author and some of them are with the actual creator. And my job is to ask a lot of questions. Why is this character doing this? Why is the world like this? What are the rules? Why can you do magic here, but you can't do it here? And, and all of those questions might be maddening, but that's what the hard work really means. And so in the middle there, you'll think that you have a crystal clear idea of what your project is and how it goes, but there's always gonna be compromise. There just is. And so before you go into the process, here's some things to think about. What are you willing to compromise on and what aren't you? Those are some things to really ask yourself these questions. You need to also ask, how long are you willing to wait? Because if there's in your show, if you're so sure, and again, this is your choice, you get to do this. You, it's your project. You're the grown up. You get to make these choices. How long are you willing to wait? Because if you go and pitch it to, you know, 50 people and all of them say no, this is a thing that doesn't fit with us. And you're like, but I believe in it. You might be waiting a long time. That's cool. It's your choice. You get to make that choice, right? What price? At what price are you willing to, to compromise or not compromise? And at the end of that decision that you are making, you need to own it, okay? And let me just tell you, production is tough. There's lots of wrinkles, lots of challenges. Things, I mean, crap is going to happen. It, nothing goes smoothly ever, ever. You might have heard a little Star Wars movie just fired their two directors. Nothing ever goes smoothly, right? So just know that even from the smallest project to the largest project, know that. So know that when you're making your compromises, you're doing it because you choose to do it and own it. And I can tell you that your, your development exec will be grateful, okay, grateful. Because as you go along, you're having this relationship, and it's about the things about going forward and things that you've agreed on together. Uh-oh, I'm buzzing. So here's some... Um, some do's and don'ts to think about as you're going into the process of development, and really that's what this is about. Um, so for like some do's, be open-minded, really. Your execs really earnestly want to make this a project that works for them, so they're going to ask for things, and what you should do is ask questions. Why do you want that? Why is that going to work? Why do you want that character older? It helps you in your knowledge, too. It helps you in your learning, because otherwise, how will you ever know? And in fact, for a lot of production, especially European co-productions, you, you're going to have a lot of different partners. And so a lot of things that maybe your one primary exec is asking are going to be exactly, exactly the same questions the other folks who are part of the project also want. Yes, it's true, sometimes they are different. But in general, the person who's working with you mostly is really trying to, trying to get your project to a place where they can green light and ask your true questions. If there's stuff you don't know, ask it. How else will you know what the answer is? Um, for for creator-driven shows, it's also important to have an opinion, and I think that that's actually the easiest one, but it's, it's a good one to have an opinion and have a specific point of view and reasons why you're doing a certain thing, not just because you like the color yellow. Uh, uh, treat your partners with respect like they're partners, not like people who, are, who you're just deigning to allow to develop your show. This happens a little bit, and I can tell you that it doesn't work for a long-term project. You really are partners in this thing. It doesn't do your, your development exec any good for them to pick up a project that doesn't work, let me tell you. Like, because they will have internally had to have been your advocate internally, and when it doesn't work, and things aren't gonna work, it does happen all the time, but it's, it's one of those things that as a development exec, it, it kills us when one of our projects don't work. So know that, that we're in it with you. Understand your partner's goals. Honestly, if they're a broadcaster, it's about ratings. 
you know, if it's Netflix or Amazon, a lot of times it's about wanting parents to come and subscribe to the channel or wanting people to stay with the channel, with, with the platform. So know what their goals are and why they're asking for you to make these changes. Um, for don't, and Steve actually asked me this in the beginning, was whether, like, are there any kind of toxic behaviors? Being closed-minded and saying no all the time because you think you know better, pretty toxic behavior when you're in a partnership and a collaboration. So I would rethink that kind of behavior if, if you're prone to that. Um, and don't disregard the concerns, honestly. If you say, well, I don't really care about your ratings, it, that's not really, a, 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 I would say, behavior for a, a good partnership. People sometimes do it, but uh, I would say that's probably not so smart. Um, I'm going to ask actually, if there's any questions so far. Yeah, of course. Any questions so far? Because I'm actually going to go into some examples. We have questions at the end, too. So if you start thinking about it, um, sorry I didn't give you guys any, any, um, any warning about that. But, if you, but now's the time to start thinking about questions, too. But I'd like to give you some examples of, uh, of um, some compromises that have happened to kind of a core idea with a different kind of uh, uh, ultimate um, manifestation. So have you guys heard of the, the movie The Shining, Stanley Kubrick? This is a movie that uh, pretty much a lot of people feel like it put him on the map, right? It's a horror movie, but um, um, it was broadly exposed out in the world. People love it. They love Jack Nicholson in this movie. Um, it was released, like, I said, like you can see, in uh, 1970. 19, sorry, it was released in, in 1980. It was, it was, the book was put out in 1977. The screenplay directed, produced by Stanley Kubrick. Stephen King hates this movie. And he was a first writer. He hates it. He hates it with the heat of 10,000 suns. He hates it. He still hates it. He hated it when it came out. He hates it now. He believes that this movie is not his story. It's not, it's not the book that he wrote. Because the book that he wrote has a female hero. And that woman in this movie is a victim. And that's just the start of why he hates us. So the question is, a lot of compromise happened, obviously, from the first, from the initial iteration of this idea to what we see in, in this movie. Should it not have been made? Should, should that, and that's the question is, should it not have been made? Should it, I mean, ultimately, maybe he would have said, uh, I don't think it should have been made, because he later on made his own version, which didn't do nearly as well. But again, for a lot of people, this is like a defining, defining movie in the horror genre. I don't know, seems like it should have been made. It adds to the world of creativity. Then you have the Flintstones, which is, you know, just exactly the same. Um, so the Flintstones, uh, you know, when it originally came out, was a primetime show on, um, on, NBC, on ABC, sorry. And uh, it was out in uh, 1960. And then uh, at that time, it was, um, it was like I said, primetime. And, uh, and General Mills was a huge advertisement. It's a cereal company, and you can still buy Flintstone cereal. So actually, um, Joe Barbera, who was kind of the marketer of the two of Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera, and Joe tell, told this story before he died. Um, he told the story many times. And the story is that at, towards the end of third season of the Flintstones, they had decided that they were going to have they were going to have Fred and Wilma have a baby. You know, let's add to the Flintstone family. And so he gets a call one night, Joe does, by the head of General Mills. And he says, so Joe, I hear you guys are going to add a baby. And Wilma and Fred are going to have a bigger family. Joe says, yes, absolutely we are. We're going to have a boy. He's like, oh, so you guys are going to have a girl. <laughs> and Joe's like, no, no, we're going to have a boy. He's like, oh, so a girl is going to be an addition to the family. And Joe's like, yeah, we're going to have a girl. <laughs> and Pebbles was born at the end of third season. 
And so again, this is a question, did it hurt the brand? Did it hurt the show? Pebbles is so cute. And, uh, and it helped General Mills sales. So that was a, Joe was the ultimate marketer, like I said, so he was pretty flexible in this sort of thing. Um, but again, it's one of those things, it's like, okay, we hear a reason for it. It doesn't hurt the property. You know, let's think about doing some of these things that help us. Oops, there we go. I don't know if you guys know the story about Doc McStuffins. Um, so we love Doc McStuffins, yes, it's amazing, Disney Junior. Uh, so created by Chris Nee, and this is actually a story that you see published, and also Nancy Kenner has told to me personally, because um, I love her. And um, so it was uh, produced and aired, obviously, on Disney Junior worldwide, and it came out in 2012. It initially, though, what she looked like, she was white. And so what happened was uh, Disney Junior looking for diversity on their air, and Nancy, who's a big proponent of this, you know, they went to Chris, and, and I'm sure Joe as well, went to Chris and, and said, you know, what do you think about making her a child of color? And Chris said, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that, but let's see what, how that works. Uh, initially, especially at that time, there's kind of this, this, um, this like general wisdom that characters of color don't sell in a lot of territories. Asia, for example, which is a huge territory. So Disney Consumer Products really wasn't for this, uh, as would any of the consumer products groups. Warner Brothers wouldn't have been for it. Like it's a, it's a common kind of thing. But, uh, but Nancy and the Disney Junior folks stood by their guns and said, you know, we really want this, we're gonna do this. And so there you have Doc McStuffins, one of the very first like worldwide successful characters, character of color. Should, they, should Chris not have said, should she have said no? I don't know, I think, I think they made a pretty good decision here. So let's go the other way. Let's talk a little about a little movie you guys might know of Brazil. One of the most amazing, uh, fantastic movies ever by Terry Gilliam. It's fantastic, uh, so bleak, this post-apocalyptic world that really throws in our face what life can become like when um, when all kinds of things take over, sadly. It seems very relevant today, but. Um, and what happened, though, is that, so it came out, and it was um, put out by Universal. They initially weren't, actually weren't gonna put it out because it was so bleak, and, and they just didn't feel like the world was ready for that. So Terry Gilliam said, you know, I really want to put this movie out. Obviously, I, I'm very invested in it. And so they said, okay, we want you to put a happy ending on it. So he put a happy ending on the movie, and it bombed. It bombed, there was no critical claim. It bombed at the box office. Now the question is whether it would have bombed anyway, even with the original. I kind of think so, because people don't go to the movies necessarily to see a bleak outcome of, you know. Um, they think about it later and that sort of thing. But when he put out his director's cut, um, which showed the original uh, back, the original ending, critics loved it. And it actually, at that point, became um, just a critic's like, they, you know, they loved it, loved it. And still today, there's a cult following, obviously, and, um, and the critics believe that, uh, obviously, if, uh, if they would have put that out, it would have been a box office hit. Again, an example of maybe he shouldn't have compromised. But again, what do you do when the, when you're, when the studio says, I'm not going to release it? I mean, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one. And sometimes it doesn't work. That, that's, that's all to say that sometimes it actually doesn't work. So then let's talk about um, some, some folks who have uh, decided not to compromise at all. So you have Leica. And I have to, let me preface this. I haven't talked to anyone at Leica. This is just from me looking at... Um, Budgets what, that they have put out there, knowing the background, loving their films, uh, but also knowing what the marketplace says. So you should know the marketplace says uh, in Hollywood, which is where I live and where our, our office is uh, in the U.S., is uh, that for a feature film that you need to make three times what your production budget is to be able to break even or be a hit. 
three times, okay? And that includes all the marketing that's in there, the PNA and all that. So that's, that's kind of the number. Leica has decided that they don't care about Hollywood rules. Um, one, they're not in Hollywood, so I think that tells us a, a whole lot. But, uh, but, um, but also, they keep making films that never meet that number. So um, Corpse Bride was made, again, these numbers are all numbers that are put out in the public, so, you know, I would say with a pinch of salt. But, uh, but Corpse Bride was made for 50 million. And, um, and worldwide, I can tell you that it made a total of um, 117 million. So just short of that 120 million mark that they would have need to make, right? And so, and it made 55 million, 53 million in the U.S., 64 million rest of the world. So that gives you a sense. All of the movies, the rest of the movies actually have done less. So the the other movies have have gone up about 10 million. So now they're all published at about, um, or all produced at about 60 million, and then and and none of them have made. Um, the number that you need to make, which is the 180 million for that Hollywood rule. They don't care. I mean, obviously they don't care. Kubo and the Two Strings, how many people love that movie? Right, it's beautiful, yeah? It's beautiful, elegant, different kind of storytelling. Just, I mean, it's just amazing. So again, the published figure for production on that was 60 million, and um, total, it made 70 million worldwide. Yeah, so again, should they stop? I don't know. Uh, you know, that they're not playing by Hollywood rules. They're loving what they're doing. We as a community pretty much love their movies. Um, so again, they're playing by a different set of rules. It does help though that, you're, um, that the owner of you uh, also owns Nike, let me just say. <laughs> uh, another example of, uh, of no compromise, and you may know this woman, J.K. Rowling. It, she's, she's very, very well known for not compromising. Apparently one of the biggest compromises she was asked to make was to make Hogwarts in the United States, and she said no. I know, crazy, can you imagine? <laughs> crazy. Um, and so there's spin-offs of this brand, obviously, right? So we saw, you know, obviously more books, uh, more movies, uh, um, there's, uh, uh, there's theme parks now, and, um, and it's now considered to be a $25 billion brand. Initially, when it came out, I can tell you that I heard from some of the Warner Brothers consumer products folks that it actually didn't do very well in consumer products. I'd say now that, that they're over that, and it's doing pretty well. <laughs> Here's just like a short list of other examples, if you can see, of where there's been compromises from book to finished, finished product or finished movie and where the author has liked it or disliked it. Game of Thrones, George Martin likes the series. The only thing that really bugs him is that they're eating through his, his content like it's, you know, like it's water. And every time anyone sees him, is, they yell at him, you know, write more books. And he gets really tired of that. They do this where he lives in Santa Fe. There's a theater there. And, he, and every time he goes to the theater that he owns, the audience is always yelling at him to finish his books. So, you know, that's annoying. Um, you have The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you guys have started watching that or not. Bar Margaret Atwater, she wrote it in the 1980s. Um, very different, actually. It, it goes to the core of what the book is, but there's a lot of changes that they made in the show. She was actually had a cameo appearance in the first episode. She's okay with it, totally cool with it. Um, on the other side, we saw uh, in like living color how Peel Travers felt about uh, Mary Poppins in the, in, the book, in the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Obviously, she hated it, and ultimately, she did it just for the money. Um, she hated the animation in it. She hated that it was light, and I mean, this was her life story, and she really hated it, and we saw that. Should it not have been made? 
I'm telling you, Mary Poppins is like such a beloved property for so many generations. Um, some other ones that where the author didn't like the final one, Willy Wonka, Charlotte's Web, Clockwork Orange, another Stanley Kubrick movie, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Truman Capote loved Audrey Hepburn. He wanted Marilyn Monroe. Would have been a completely different movie, right? Different movie. And conceivably could have, you know, actually saved Marilyn's life. But again, history is history. Um, the Never Evering Story and Queen of the Damned. Anne Rice hated, hated that version. So all that to say is that the history is replete with examples of compromise. And some of them didn't work, but a whole lot of them did. And I think that the whole point is that ultimately, that's what creation and having an ultimate product, we can't do it by ourselves unless you're Phil Knight. Um, we do it together and we do it as a team. And as long as we're all on the same page that, that we're trying to make an amazing, amazing show together, then I think that we should keep open minds and open hearts to be able to do it. And then finally, uh, my own little compromise. Um, so there was a show that I licensed a Cartoon Network called Code Lyoko um, coming out of France. Um, I optioned, I licensed season one and season two 52 half hours, and then, uh, and then, because it was doing so well, commissioned 45 more episodes for a total of 97 episodes. And that was a show that stayed on the air for years and years and really was a good, was a workhorse. And, uh, and actually, Moonscoop at the time was very, very proud of that. So uh, halfway in the middle of production of like the new ones that we commissioned, not halfway, a little towards the beginning, there are again already two seasons, and these are kids, right? Um, so the main producer, came up to me and he says, so, you know, we wanna, we wanna move the relationship of these kids from being where they are to start having relationships with each other, right? And I said, absolutely not. And I said, I know that in France, romance is a big thing and you guys wanna, you know, have lots of like progress and relationships in the US. You know, boys don't really like to talk to girls until like they're 50. So uh, we're not doing that. Uh, and so um, I said, maybe we can go a little bit to the crush, but, uh, but we're not gonna, they're not gonna be dating. We're not, this is not that kind of show, and that's a different network. Now he has since told me, because he is now my boss uh, at Gaumont, uh, Nicholas Allen, that, that they sneaked a few of that in and I didn't catch them. Um, but I can tell you that, uh, that he was very happy. And later on, when I go, went to go visit Moonscoop uh, in France, he actually walked the director over to me and said, tell him what you told me, tell him. He doesn't believe me. So I actually had to explain the whole thing to the director of the series so that he would understand. So I've done it myself lots and lots of times. And, um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I'm always so happy to have gone through the process. The end. The end. Thank you. So now, guys, we've got 15 minutes to take questions. So if you, we've got a microphone roving around. So if you want to stick your hands up for questions, um, what I was also going to suggest we do is just take 60 seconds to get out of some listening mode. Into, so turn to the person next to you and just work out what's the thing you'd most like to know from Terry in the next 15 minutes. Ed Moline, Beano Studios. Um, really enjoyed that, that presentation. How would you approach... Uh, Development and compromise with, uh, with commercial, uh, the commercial side of the business. Because I think these days a lot of us are dealing more with ad-funded products or uh, dealing with marketing and salespeople, and they definitely have their views on what a show needs to do. But they're not necessarily in the same kind of development world that the rest of us are in. 
do, do you mean something like, uh, as an example, like um, there was a conversation at a certain place where they wanted Wonder Woman or say Superman to have an airplane and the people who were writing the story said, but Superman can fly. Like that? I mean, yeah, in, in that vein, but also in terms of, um, you know, from a commercial perspective, a lot of people make decisions in a very different approach than you make decisions creatively, and it's much more uh, direct and things get shot down, and it, it's a little bit, it's less about collaboration and more about getting to a point. So how, how you do you need do to ask that dynamic? Why. I think you need to ask them why. So for example, um, one of my pals um, over at Spin Master was telling me that because um, we had presented some shows to them years ago when I was at Rainmaker, actually, and and um, and, and this sounds like such an arbitrary thing. And they were saying, okay, w for this one outfit, we had it like a certain purple color. Is this, tell me if this is the kind of the thing you're talking about. It was a certain purple color, and they're like, we have to change that. We have to change it. And um, and if we didn't ask the question why, we just think it was arbitrary that they just whatever. But no, they they actually had research that showed that this particular color of purple, weirdly, um, wouldn't get bought. Like it didn't sit on the shelf very well and it wouldn't get bought. And so like it, it looked too purple to be for boys for something. And then, and so, and girls, would, it wasn't in the girls' aisles, it was, it was on the boys' aisle. So, and, and so boys wouldn't buy it because it didn't look cool enough or whatever. But they had like a lot of research to show that. And for us, honestly, like whether it was that color purple or it was darker purple or it was green or like, you know, for our story, it didn't matter. So we were happy to do that. Um, so I would say ask the question why they're doing it. Usually it's not arbitrary. Usually there's a reason. And the, there the balance is going to be, because it's always going to be about risk, right? That's the question. It's always, ultimately, it's about risks. So knowing that, you know, in order for them to put something on, if it's commercial, like something on the shelf, which costs them at a minimum, you know, something like $2 million to get things actually made. Like, I don't say that you should take a, go away from the authenticity of your story, because it has to feel like it, it's part of the story and it makes sense. Um, at the same time, know that, again, it goes back to knowing their reasons for doing things and not dismissing their concerns. And it's like, if you want, if you want really them to be behind you, because you feel like you have a property that, that could go that way, it really is working together. And you can, you can if you ask them a lot of questions, and they're used to people being cl closed-minded, by the way. They're really used to creators to saying, no, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. And so, um, so if you actually work with them and ask them why they're wanting to do that, then I think that you'll come to a better place. It doesn't always happen, honestly, and ultimately it will come down to the person who has the money. Um, and again, how long are you willing to wait? And are you willing to, for them to walk away and say no? Okay, can we have another question? Hands up. Well, who is getting the mic to the next person? Are there times when those commercial considerations actually make the product better? The, the show better? I, I think so. I mean, again, it's one of those things that they say, if you just, so here's an example. Um, we recently had a, um, a person come in and look at a couple of our properties, and they said, you know, if you would have made that one character a little more unique, you know, whether they had like a, almost like a, um, you know, a birthmark or some sort of a something like that, then you couldn't have retailers making generic versions of it. And, um, and then you could actually capitalize on this character that you did such an amazing job with. Wow. And we said, damn. Wow. <laughs> so it's like beating, there's an Aldi version in the shops. <laughs> okay, so hands up for the next question. We've got a microphone ready already at the back. Name, please. Uh, Laurie Johnson. Okay, hi, Laurie. Um, 
I'm hoping to soon start out as a script writer and director. And I'm feeling slightly torn between obviously needing to seize on the first opportunity to have my break, but at the same time not wanting to, my sort of first project to be something that I don't believe is very good and isn't going to give the sort of, um, isn't going to be something that represents what I really want to create. And what I'm afraid of is that if I just sort of create crap for my first thing, just to try and get a name in the industry, I might never be able to live sort it, of... Live it get, down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of like, yeah, be able to sort of have the credit and the, the respect to be allowed to do something that I really believe in. Okay, so I would just say to everyone, don't ever present crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Honestly, like don't. We see a lot of it, honestly, and it's it's uh, and it's not crap. It, people put a lot of put you know a lot of their their um, their heart and soul behind stuff. But if you already know that it's not the best you can do, don't do it. I mean, don't do it because part of selling it is your passion behind it and your love, and that's what's gonna. I mean, that is so much of the sales pitch, and and if you have a if you have a fear that it's not the best you can do, don't do it. What you should do in the meantime is work on another project that you love for somebody else. Get your credits, but do it doing someone else. It's it's one of those things of you know when when someone comes to us uh, as as uh, buyers and their first time and they've never worked on any other project. It's it's a tough one. Uh, an example of that is um, and um, and it's it's pretty painful. Um, but, uh, and it's happened so many times, but, but uh, John Christopher Lucy with Ren and Stimpy, Van Partible with Johnny Bravo, they were so young and it was their first creation, they really couldn't run a show, they didn't know how. And they were given the opportunity and they were given people around them, but they just didn't have the experience. They didn't have the experience. They were both kicked off their shows. So we're, if in the meantime that you don't have the best show that you possibly, the best property, best project, work on somebody else's for a while. Okay, we had another question uh, on this side of the auditorium. And then another one down the front and one more down this, down this side as well. Okay, so again, could you tell us who you are and where you work? Oh, hi, I'm Gillian Cordroy. I'm a freelance screenwriter. Um, I was very curious about um, the show with the Doctor of Colour, and I wondered whether you could explain a bit more about how that fight was won because from what I could gather, it was the distributors who presumably put up a fair amount of the money who were cagey and wary of that choice, and yet... Not distributors, this is a Nickelodeon, or Nickelodeon, a Disney Junior original. All right. So yeah, so Christy, who's an, who was a creator and a writer, um, pitched the show, I guess, mm -hmm. together. I don't know if she was together. Does anyone know? She was together with Brown Bag at the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. And so um, pitched to Disney Junior, to Nancy Kenner, mm -hmm. who was in charge of it, Nancy loved it, loved the show. Joe D'Ambrosia, who also was head of development over, loved the show, but they wanted more diversity. Mm -hmm. and, and they weren't against it. No, but you said that then they oh, had Oh, you to mean with the consumer products people? Yes, yes. I was not in the room. All ah, right. <laughs> you, I, I, you know, it's funny, because, um, uh, so did you hear that from Nick, Chris or Brownbag? So you know, so it was a white boy. Which actually is was is part of the kind of general wisdom out there is that if you have a, a white boy as a main character, that property is more likely to sell worldwide than any other. That's why genre. I was interested in how they won the argument with the consumer products people. I think there was a lot of I'm not doing that. I'm doing this, <laughs> but I don't know. 
I would not say that I would not repeat Nancy's words. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Gillian. Next question, a little bit further down the auditorium. A couple of people with their hands up there. Hi, name's Graham, uh, animator and writer from Dublin. When you're developing ideas um, in the very early stages before you're taking it to the marketplace, you're just on your own or with your co-writers, uh, do you think you should be really thinking about who you're targeting your ideas towards yet? Because obviously that's going to affect your decision making, that's going to affect your writing. Absolutely, Or should you yes. keep it broad and let the broadcasters no. come to you? Because that's always the first question is who is this for? And always, always. And, uh, um, and you're exactly right. You write it for that audience. So if it's preschool, it's preschool. If it's 6 to 11. And, and you know, here's the crazy thing, and I think you guys will agree with me, is like there's a huge amount of difference between a 6-year-old and 11-year-old. Huge amount of difference. And then in Europe, it's like it's less than four years old and four to nine. Right, Joe? It's like four to nine, yes. Um, so then, uh, so then um, it, but that's the first question. And so you need to know, like, do a bit of homework. You need to know what other shows are in that space and what's the tone of those shows and which ones are being successful. And how you know they're successful is they're on the air more. But I definitely, it's a great question. Definitely know who you're writing towards. Okay, we've got two more questions. We've got five minutes left. Two more questions. Second row there, first of all, please. I'll talk fast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we've probably got time for three quick questions. Hi, I'm Claire from BBC Children's. I'm always interested in how you can take learnings from one industry into, a, into another area. But what do you think you can take in terms of your lessons around compromise when you're talking about not about creative compromise but around, say, in um, compromise uh, conflict around ways of working and how you can perhaps apply some of the lessons you've learned to, say, internal politics or conflicts around different wow, teams and how they want to work. that's like a three-hour session, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I have to say, asking a lot of questions and being open-minded are really, they sound cliche, and they sound, and it, it sounds, oh, well, we always do that. We don't always do that, really. It's really asking a lot of questions. It's really being open-minded to what their concerns are. And, you know, and the thing is, their concerns might have nothing to do with your concerns, you know, because you're just in different areas or whatever. But where you have a touch point with them, you know, everybody's trying to get through their day and make, and, and let's presume, do the best job they can. So everybody's trying to do that. And, and, but most of us are selfish. We want to do the job we want to do, and we don't want to have to worry about other guys, you know, but that's not how the world works. And, uh, and in an organization like BBC, definitely not how. You guys have <laughs> massive amounts of people in different groups and different, um, different areas of concern and focus and budgets. And, and so um, I think it, it, it's exactly right, though, realizing that you can take actually some of those core learnings and that exercise of, it's, I think it's a lot of asking questions and, being, and compromise and trying to pull out, even if it's only a couple things, of the things that, you, that the other person is asking for and needing and trying to apply it to what you're doing. I think I think it, it does work. Not always. There's still there's some toxic people, and that's a whole different conversation. But but generally, I think that it's really about opening ears. Yeah. Thank you. Hi there. I'll be very quick. Firstly, thank you very much. We really wish we had another three hours with you. It was great. Oh, thank you. Um, just a very quick one on one pages. I seem to be getting lots of conflicting information on what to put on a one page or whether to send it to someone, whether or not. Obviously, people like to see less than more. But if you have any tips that are good to maybe put on a one-pager? Um, so 
Yes, I, uh, on a one page. So yeah, you shouldn't have, fill it up with words um, and because the, no one's gonna read it. And I would say that um, usually with creative, like a creative sales piece, one page is what you're talking about, is yeah. So you have like a short little paragraph about the world. You have like, um, if you'll say you have three main characters, little paragraphs about that. Little, little, little. And what, what are the key things about your characters that make them different than other ones, like your world? Um, what makes it different than other things? And, and what's the amazing part of that world? And then, um, uh, and that'll take a, a bit of it. And then um, maybe, I, I wouldn't put um, story ideas on there or springboards or any of that, you know? And then maybe some of the background and how it works together and why the show is really funny or really dramatic or really exciting and what the hook is. And the show needs to have a hook. What makes it different than every other show that's around there? Because again, so many of us who have been buyers, you know, it literally is a thousand pitches a year. So what makes your show different than another show? And, um, and, and you can, and if you can concisely put that into your two sentences, um, definitely do that. But, uh, and put definitely artwork. Artwork helps a lot. Terry, thank you. We are out of time now, guys. Big round, thank you. Especially thanks to Terry Collage.